When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the podcast. When you think of the Stasi, East Germany's infamous secret police, I'd take a guess that the first thing that pops into your head is the movie The Lives of Others, or the TV show Deutschland 83. Well, this episode of the show is going to change that. The Guardian's Berlin bureau chief, Philip Altman, has uncovered the true story of the Stasi's Poetry Club, a bizarre creative writing group that set out to win the Cold War with verse. It's the subject of his new book, The Stasi Poetry Circle. He joined me a few weeks back to tell me more. Philip, I have been telling people this week that I'm doing a podcast about the Stasi's secret poetry writing club, and everyone has found the idea both grotesque and slightly hilarious, because there's something profoundly oxymoronic and weird about a secret police force that has its own creative writing club, isn't there? It is. I mean, that's uh, what originally got me going on this whole subject. I mean, it seems, as you say, it seems like something out of a Monty Python sketch or it sounds like a sequel to The Lives of Others or something. You know, the Stasi, a secret police that was famous for controlling freedom of speech and and poetry, which has always been the genre that allows people to express their innermost thoughts and desires. What attracted them to each other? How did the Stasi end up thinking that this is something they needed to do, that this is something they needed to spend resources on and something they needed to run actually quite professionally? That was, for me, the starting point of the book. So what was the Stasi Poetry Circle and how did you discover it? Now, you were already running your own poetry club at the time of a more <laughs> traditional kind uh, in London, weren't you, when you came across this? Yeah, it was, it was uh, something very haphazard. It was a sort of point in my life where I was, I mean, I had a job, I had a career. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, in a completely existential crisis, but things were happening in my life that weren't going that well. And I, I sort of suddenly felt this urge to do something good, some charity work that I wanted to do on the side while sort of doing my journalism career at The Guardian. And uh, I volunteered for, for a couple of months at a sort of care home for the elderly in, in King's Cross where they sort of said, oh, you know, come around uh, once a week uh, for an hour over lunch and just, you know, entertain the people who who come here. You know, they just appreciate company. And I realised they didn't really have that much to offer uh, <laughs> apart from <laughs> an English degree. And uh, I thought, okay, well, let's just, re- you know, read poems. Uh, so it was something that I sort of, I was interested in at the time in a way it was I was enjoying the dynamic of this of this group I was interested in sort of what people got out of poetry in a way uh, that it could have a sort of pastoral care function almost you know it could evoke memories anyway that around that time I then uh, I, I left at the end of that I left I left London to, to go to Berlin for the Guardian to where I head up the Guardian's uh, Berlin Bureau and 
I'd come across the story of this Stasi poetry circle or the, the working circle of writing Czechists to give it its proper name a couple of years beforehand. But somehow it came back into my mind and I realized you could find, uh, you could actually order up a reprint of one of the anthologies that this circle had produced, which is called Wir über uns, uh, eine Anthologie der Kreiseierarbeitsgemeinschaft schreibende Czechisten. Uh, you know, it's we about us. Uh, an anthology of the writing circle of writing Czechists. So I, I ordered this up, uh, this little booklet, and um, it just seemed to be a, a, a really curious story that I wanted to find out more about. And um, so I had the names of some of the people who were in the Stasi um, from this booklet, and I then spent sort of uh, more than five years tracking them down. Um, uh, I went into the Stasi records archive, which uh, is, you know, historically something that's you know, very unique about Germany and the Stasi, that they've opened this archive up. And uh, not just the people who were spied on by the Stasi, but also media and historians can go in and look at these archives. So you need to get assigned a researcher who then helps you with the task. And it took a long time, but I, I managed to uncover quite a lot of, a lot more poems over the years. I found via various uh, routes, found people who had been spied on by people in this circle and just to sort of amassed quite a lot of stories. Uh, that I've, uh, and in the end, what was in my head originally a, a short article became a book. To go back to your question, well, how did the Stasi come to have a poetry circle? Now, the records that I found don't answer that very clearly, actually. And to an extent, I'm speculating with, uh, I think, uh, quite a high degree of certainty what, what function that circle had. There's a sort of naive answer, or there, there's a, um, a quite a banal answer. And that is that East Germany cared quite a lot about literature. It was certainly a state where the, uh, where the state or whether the ruling Socialist Unity Party felt it was in their remit to uh, shape people's reading habits. It issued all sorts of decrees over the, um, the years that the, that socialist East Germany existed, that they wanted to, to bring up the, the percentage of people who read serious, high quality uh, literature. And it wanted it to be higher than, than in the West. Had um, programs like um, you know every factory had uh, with with a certain amount of um, workers had to uh, had to have a library with a certain amount of books. It had a, a vision that was rooted in Marxist philosophy that it wanted its citizens to be people who both worked with their hands and with their their brains. And one thing that I sort of discovered in um, and something I didn't know about, even though I'm, I'm German, I'm, I'm, I was born in, in West Germany, but something I had, had no idea about really, um, about something I've discovered through my research was just how, how many poets ended up sort of having quite important political uh, functions or political roles in, uh, in East Germany and who sort of drove this, this quite utopian, slightly sometimes insanely utopian idea that poetry needed to almost be as important as politics in, in East Germany. There was one poet, a formerly expressionist poet called uh, uh, Johannes Becher, who ended up being culture minister of East Germany, who, who had this idea that in East Germany, poetry would have a, what you call a Großmacht, uh, Stellung, the, the, the standing of a sovereign power. It needed to be equal to politics. One of the things that 
Becher's sort of uh, vision resulted in was a program that was started in 1963 after he died, which was called the Bitterfeldweg or the Bitterfeld Path. It's named after the, the town where they had a, had a summit to come up with this program. But essentially it was the idea that writers would be parachuted into factories where they would run writing circles. So uh, the idea is that they would work in these in these factories, so they would be in touch with the working classes, but also the workers would learn how to write verse. So that's the sort of um, the naive interpretation or answer to why did the Stasi feel it had to have a poetry writing workshop is because every other branch of industry did the same. Becker believed that the sonnet wasn't a form of poetry ideally suited to express romantic love, but actually was ideally suited to express Marx's idea of dialectical materialism. Can you tell us a bit more about that? This is uh, something that just really fascinated me. I mean, he ended up writing a number of uh, essays on the sonnet, and he had had this idea that the sonnet mirrored the structure of dialectics, essentially, so that that a good sonnet, the way he saw it, came in three parts, in a thesis, antithesis, and a synthesis. And he he believed that this was the supreme form of poetry that essentially should be written, and that should, you know, it could be, uh, that could be one example of how art, or poetry in particular, could guide the people of East Germany onto a path towards socialism and communism eventually or could uh, infuse them with this algorithm of insight um, that uh, was the sort of underlying philosophy of of the Soviet bloc. I mean, the interesting thing is, (laughs) did that mean anything to anyone who was writing poetry? In the Stasi poetry circle, it did. I I mean, there was at least one poem in this original anthology that I found, which which is called Dialectics, and which sort of tries to do that. It's not a sonnet, actually. Uh, It doesn't meet the line requirements, but it does try to sort of think dialectically about what it means to be a a soldier. Uh, It sort of starts with him saying, okay, I take my machine gun and I clean it and I get it ready to to shoot. And then I think, so so the first bit was the, the thesis, and then the antithesis, he says, and then I wonder why, if we're basically, if we're fighting for peace, uh, as we claim to do in East Germany, then why do we have an army? Why don't we build houses instead? So that's the critical thought that suddenly enters them. And I guess in Hegelian or Marxist dialectics, there would, there would then be a process of synthesis, which gets these two conflicting statements into some sort of uh, conclusion. And the interesting thing is for, for this soldier, it, I think he can't quite work it out. He just, it just ends in a sort of an order. He says, and then I take aim and I shoot. So I think in practice, even then, this very, uh, utopian idea of the, of the sonnet, uh, didn't mean, uh, that much to people who are actually writing poetry, even within the Stasi. And that's something I then uh, started to, discover perhaps that as well as this very utopian founding narrative to East Germany about about um, this being the country of readers as opposed to the bestseller country in the in the west there was a an attitude towards art and culture which was influenced by some other writers who had also given political posts um, one of them was 
Friedrich Wolf, who was a poet and playwright, who later became um, East Germany's ambassador to Poland. He was the father of perhaps the most uh, famous East German spymaster, Markus Wolf, a man without a face. But uh, Wolf Senior, uh, he wrote a very famous poem in the, in the 19, late 1920s, which was called Kunst ist Waffe, Art is a Weapon. And that is essentially a, an idea that he pursued, is that if you want to be an artist in East Germany, you need to further the cause, the political cause of the, uh, of this country. And this idea that, that, that poetry was a weapon is, that sounds really absurd. I mean, that was, uh, that, that, we're back to Monty Python then. The idea that somehow this poetry circle could come up with a super weapon in the Cold War is pretty absurd again. But at the same time, that was an idea that seemed to sort of ring around people's heads. So this motto, art is a weapon, is, you know, it, it props up again and again and again until the 1980s. And I think to an extent, um, that was the idea that that was in the minds of the Stasi when basically in, in the early 1980s, in 1982, they started to professionalize this poetry circle. And that's when things sort of got really interesting to, to me because uh, they recruited a poet, quite a Famous isn't the right word, but a very successful poet, which isn't the same as famous. Uh, this guy, uh, he was called Uwe Berger, and he um, held all sorts of really uh, quite important posts. There were all sorts of writers' committees in East Germany, and he was sat in most of them and was in the executive committee of, uh, of, of others. And he was published by Aufbau, which was a big um, publisher. He had written you know, sort of a very uh, productive churned out a, an anthology of uh, a collection of poems every year. But he wasn't in the party, which is very unusual because at the time, a lot of, I mean, uh, you know, I think at the time, almost every sixth person in East Germany was a member of the Socialist Unity Party. But they approached him and asked him to come into this compound once a month for two hours between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. Uh, to the House of Culture that they had there on the first floor in a room adorned with pictures of Lenin and Erich Honecker, the East German state leader, and taught them how to write proper verse. He taught them about sort of, you know, literary techniques, about rhyme schemes, um, about scansion, about all these technical aspects that they previously hadn't taken very seriously. I mean, there was a, um, an officer who'd run this circle beforehand who was... I mean, he just wanted, I think this guy just wanted to, he just enjoyed writing, rhyming, essentially. And, and, and they just sort of wrote quite silly, um, poems beforehand. A lot of them actually love, love poems and sometimes hilariously at odds with what you'd expect to be the, the sort of political ideas of a Sazi soldier. There's one which, I mean, there's one poem in which a soldier imagines writing, I love you into the evening sky with his searchlight. There's another one. Where <laughs> That's one, amazing. Uh, where's one where, um, who, who uh, the, uh, he says, uh, he basically, he's, he's in love and he, uh, says, I wish you could promote me to being a lance corporal, your lance corporal in love. Uh, and then he says, I, I wish, uh, my, you, you, my love for you is, is mine or mine. And I hope it never gets, um, nationalized or collectivized. <laughs> so, I mean, the, uh, the political message was slightly at odds with what you might expect. But in 1982, so when this guy comes in, Uwe Berger, uh, that, that 
that changes uh, somehow. I think these, um, he, he tries to um, instill in them the idea that poetry is a weapon to an extent. It can heighten their morale and it can, it can firm up their uh, political belief uh, and, and their hatred of the, I mean, that's one thing they, they spelt out in, in what this circle should do. It should, it should heighten the hatred of the, of the class enemy and to, to intensify their love for Soviet Russia to an extent. So there are lots of the Stasi men in the group, mostly men, ended up writing sort of, I mean, if they are love poems, they are love poems to, to Russia or to, to sort of poems expressing gratitude for uh, um, the Red Army's defeat of, um, of the Nazis. So, I mean, that's slightly different to the, the banal or the naive interpretation of why this poetry circle existed. But you could say maybe it's not that bad because it still seems a bit absurd. There is an even more sinister layer of the poetry circle. And this is the idea that the poets were being spied on by Berger, who was using poetry as a way of looking into their souls to see if they were good Stasi officers. And this is a this is a very sinister aspect, perhaps the most sinister aspect of the circle. Will you speak to us a bit about Berger's career as an informant for the Stasi and how he was trying to use poetry against the people who were writing it? Yeah. As I said, you can go into the um, Stasi records agency, they assign you a researcher and in they... You can you can submit a request to to look at a um, so that they distinguish informally between victims' files and and perpetrator files. And Uverberger uh, had a perpetrator file, and when I ordered that app, it was enormous. It was I mean it filled up my writing desk, and uh, I had a tower of files in front of me. And it turned out that he had been an incredibly productive. <laughs> Uh, informant on the East German literary scene, all the while, I guess, keeping people in the belief that he was apolitical because he wasn't in the party. Um, he'd been, he had a sort of backstory which made that plausible in that he was a part of the, you know, what in Germany, uh, people call the Flakhelfer generation. So the, the very young teenagers who were drafted into, into to shooting down planes in the last months of the, of the war. Uh, and, that generation, you know, another famous one was the novelist Günter Grass, uh, the former foreign minister uh, Genscher, I think, was was also one. Um, a lot of them sort of uh, were traumatized by that experience because they were very young. And I think a lot of them became quite passionate Democrats as a result. And from uh, the way Berger sort of positioned himself in, in, himself in public, that People seem to believe that maybe that was the same case with him, that he didn't want to join, ever want to join anything resembling a military organization again, even though it was a political party. So that was a sort of alibi. And it was, I guess, an alibi because he was spying on on everyone. He was he wrote reports for a period of just over 20 years. Uh, he wrote um, reports on colleagues, friends. He asked to borrow uh, other writers' manuscripts. And then wrote reports on, on their political content. He visited other writers or friends and told the Stasi what TV programs they were watching, what jokes they were making. And he could just, um, in a sort of 
put down and destroy his rivals with a stroke of a pen and accuse them of being bad socialists, uh, of being fat. Some of them he, he just, you know, just dismissed as being fascists. I mean, that was became a sort of just anyone who wrote surrealist poetry was a proto-fascist. And um, uh, he had a very attentive audience in the Stasi who wasn't schooled in this stuff. I mean, the, um, they were very attentive to, to anything that, uh, that Uwe Berger uh, wrote to them. Now, Uwe Berger, I mean, he, he, he's dead. He died shortly before I started researching this, uh, this subject. But he wrote a memoir uh, after the fall of the war. And he does acknowledge that he worked as an informant. He doesn't, sort of, he makes it sound like a very, some very minor, um, something. And he said, you know, I didn't proactively approach anyone. I just occasionally sort of, he makes it sort of sound like opinion polling. And he certainly, uh, he then says, um, uh, you know, in the, in the eighties, I just had enough. You know, I'm just, I was a, I was a man. I was interested in beauty. I could not, uh, burden myself with these, tiresome uh, chores anymore uh, and, and these negative aspects of life. So he, he asks the Stasi for a meeting and he basically says, I want to quit being, uh, working as an informant. And they say, okay, in return, can you run this Stasi poetry circle for us? That's how he makes it sound in his memoirs. He makes it sound as if that was the end of his career as a spy. It turns out that was not the case. He, <laughs> and that was, I mean, to me, that was the the bit where this story of the Stasi poetry circle became a sort of like a parable or something, because uh, there was a beautiful reversal as the Stasi spies started to learn how to write poetry. They ended up writing things that were not, and they didn't want to write weapons in verse form. They wanted to write, poetry is always ambiguous. It's always in itself, it asks questions. Uh, that um or it it teases you it 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 gets at sort of uh, ambiguities it it's about holding two ideas into in your head at the same at the same time so at that point when they start producing poems that are more and more ambiguous overberger's instincts kick in again and he starts right filing reports again to uh, to the superiors at the stasi about the people in this circle uh, now supposedly the Stasi was not meant to spy on its own officers. But that's clearly then, to me, it's pretty evident that, that was a function that uh, that's something that made this poetry circle attractive to the Stasi, that it was a way to to monitor its own staff and particularly the quiet ones. I mean, that's something, and that's something that's evident, you can prove it, is that that's how the Stasi thought about poetry circles in general, because... It had not just in branches of industry, but also in youth clubs and so on. It set up or encouraged the setting up of, of poetry workshops. Uh, and it, in many of them, the people who ran them were informants. So that's something that I found out from talking to, to, you know, people who weren't in the stars, to, to dissident writers, that they, they all had this experience of, of their local poetry workshop that were, which was a sort of honey trap for, creative minds for people who thought laterally, who, uh, who, I mean, you know, it's worth saying that a lot of them were socialists, but they didn't quite believe in the socialism of the state. And they were sort of, you know, this, um, there was something dangerous about these people because the Star Socialist Unity Party was a party that claimed to have the 
ultimate authority on the, the meaning of, of what um, Marx what Marx said, what you know, or, or Lenin's writing, they they sort of wanted to hold an authority so, um, uh, because they didn't have an authority from elections, which were rigged. <laughs> and so um, it was a sort of literary authority they had. So anyone who was uh, skilled at reading against the grain was therefore highly dangerous. To finish, will you tell us the story of a woman who was everything Becker pretended to be, a, a genuine rebel and a genuine poetic talent? Yeah, it was a, this was a, a woman that, I mean, just to, it's a short preamble. I mean, I, I thought it was very important in a way when writing a book about the Stasi and a book about the Stasi, which is a lot of it is, is, uh, was about what's happening inside the Stasi, which I did find interesting. And I think it's something that, sometimes gets has, has often been overlooked in a way that the Sazi became this incredibly scary uh, I mean scary they were but this incredibly um, efficient organization which I think the closer you look at it it, it wasn't always efficient and it's sometimes been sort of built up this as this merciless bogeyman when uh, when actually there's some interesting cracks but nonetheless I thought it was it would be problematic to to only look at the Stasi itself. But I wanted to. I was interested in also looking at the people who were the victims of uh, of the Stasi, and uh, I came across a, a woman uh, called uh, Annegret Golin, who was a, a sort of. I mean, yeah, she was a, a genuine. Uh, she was someone who who would have fitted this idea of what the Stasi, uh, what East Germany was originally about, and that she was just a, someone who wrote instinctively. She just wrote poetry all the time, and she um, she wanted to become a librarian or work in a, in a bookshop. But I think because she wrote, she just you know she was like I think if she you know she'd be a sort of a rapper now or someone uh, if she was alive uh, she is alive, but if she was young today, she's just sort of writing what was in her head all the time, and often that was provocative. Why should the Stasi care? Why should the states care about what a, a teenage girl writes in her diary? I mean, and yet yeah, it did. I mean, this is the, the Stasi uh, got hold of a book of, I mean, handwritten poems that um, this woman, Anna Great Golin, had uh, written while she was at school and something she'd shared, I think some some cases copied out poems to her classmates and one of these classmates father was the Stasi informant and handed on this booklet to the Stasi and it was used against her after she was arrested as as evidence for, for her being subversive of the state and she had to she was questioned by Stasi officers in prison about the meaning of these poems it's just the ultimate uh for me that was the ultimate expression of of this utter paranoia about something that you know the state should just not have cared about and and yet it did uh and i think her story is uh, she was the for me she's the sort of even though she's not you know she's not she's thematically directed linked to the stasi poetry circle as a sort of counterpoint she wasn't didn't directly come across any of the individuals who were in that group but to me she's sort of the uh, the, the tragic hero of, of of the story because she um she wrote poetry uh, in a very uncompromising way and and refused to allow her art to be instrumentalized by by politics, which is what happened um, with, with East Germany in the end, in spite of its initial hopes. 
Philip, I will never think about creative writing classes the same way again. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. This episode of the podcast starred Philip Alterman and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor was John Doughty, and the series is made by me and Dana Outcult. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>